We have been working our way through, for the last couple of weeks, um, we're really in this extended series in the Gospel of Luke. And um, as we've worked our way through this book, we've seen that part of what Luke is doing is he's trying to build this case of who Jesus is. So who, who is this who is this celebrity rabbi that is going around and, and casting out demons, who is healing the sick, um, who, who literally is drawing thousands around him as he teaches, even as he gives very hard teaching to his disciples? Who is this man, Jesus? Last week we read about Jesus giving these warnings to his disciples against the dangers of coveting, against the dangers of greed, of never being satisfied with what God has given you of panting after all of the things that God has not given you. And in response to this, um, Jesus is engaging with this man. Jesus is giving this teaching, and this man walks up to Jesus and gives Jesus this essentially a request or a demand and says, Jesus, I want you to tell my brother to give me part of his inheritance. And in response to this statement uh, from this man in the crowd, Jesus tells this story of a, of a successful, of a prosperous farmer. And in this story, the, the, the farmer in Jesus' parable at the beginning of Luke chapter 12, the, the farmer is so prosperous, the farmer has done so well that he, he just, he needs to build more and bigger barns to store all his stuff. That becomes his, his life vision, is that all, I don't know, I've, I've been successful, I've done all these things, and he says to his soul, as though this were every part of him, he says, I'm going I'm to store all that I have in these barns. And if I need more, I'm just going to build more barns. And if I need them bigger, I'm just going to build them up bigger. I'm going to store everything I have. But, but Jesus, as he's telling the story, he, he gives it a turn, and he says, you know what, but at the end, God called him a fool. Because he was watching all the wrong things. He was paying attention to all the wrong things. And though it seems like he had everything that he could ever want, he was so prosperous, he was so successful, he knew what he was doing. But in the end, Jesus said, he lost his soul. He was paying attention to all the wrong things. This was a man with a plan, right? This was a man who knew how to work hard. This was a man who knew how to save, who knew how to invest, who knew how to farm. He, he was a man with a plan, and yet he was focused on all the wrong things. You guys remember that Mike Tyson quote, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth? Anybody been punched in the mouth, right? Markets go up and down, don't they? Jobs come and go. Some of us have lost our jobs. Some of us struggle for a long time to try to find work. Unexpected in expenses occur. Things don't usually go according to our plan. As much as we want to prop ourselves up and make ourselves secure in our stuff, in our money, in our things, it doesn't always work. Church, we can never build enough barns. We just can't. We can never build enough barns to make us feel secure. If, if your goal is, if I just had one more barn full of stuff, if I had one more account full of money, then finally I could sleep at night. It's just not the case. Our barns will never be big enough to satisfy us because our life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Church, we need something greater. We need something greater in our stuff. And yet, unfortunately, we have invested so much of our energy, so much of our brain power, so much of the affections of our heart in just accumulating stuff. 
And we know this intuitively, don't we? We know this as a people because our satisfaction does not often increase the more we consume, right? In fact, usually the opposite is true. Our, our satisfaction actually decreases the more and more we consume. We have this insatiable, this insatiable appetite that can never be filled. And, and with this story and the story that follows, Jesus is building a case for, uh, for his disciples and even for the religious leaders who were there, uh, for this crowd that surrounded him, literally thousands of people. He's building a case about who he is, this Messiah this God, the Son of Man, and how He is fundamentally different from every other God in the universe. And I use God with the lowercase g, right? He is different than every other God in the universe, including and especially the ultimately powerless gods of money and possessions. And so we'll pick up right where we left off last week in verse 20, or in verse yeah, 22, I believe. And Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on it, for life is more than food. Your body is more than clothing. So consider the ravens, consider the birds. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. He provides for them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies. Consider the flowers, how they grow, how they neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And if God so clothed the grass, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Don't, don't seek after what you are to eat and what you are to drink. And, and don't, be, don't be worried because the nations, that's what the nations do around you. The nations of the world, they seek after all of these things. But your father knows you. He knows what you need. So seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. He says, don't be afraid. Fear not. Because this is, in some ways, terrifying teaching, right? For people who, are, who have invested a lot of energy and a lot of time to, to gathering and building their pile of resources, this, this passage, this teaching from Jesus is scary. It's scary to me. It's scary to write a check for the kingdom, right? It's scary to let go of the things you've been holding so tightly for so long. And so Jesus says, with such loving tenderness, he says, don't be afraid, little sheep. Don't be afraid. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And that's what empowers you to sell your possessions, give to the needy, and so provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old. He's saying, invest in something else. Invest in something lasting. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth can destroy, because where your treasure is, church, there your heart will be also. And that's why so many of us have very anxious hearts, because our treasure is in the wrong things. God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. God, I pray that you would, uh, God, I pray that you would give us faith. 
God, you called your disciples out then and you call us out now that, God, we are people of little faith. And God, so we need you and we confess our need to you. But God, we rejoice together this morning that you are a God who loves us. You are a God who knows us. You are a God who knows our needs. You are a God who is with us in our desperation. You are a God who forgives us in our pride. You are God and you are good. And so God, help us to see the world and see our stuff and our money and our resources in a new light this morning. Help us to know how we can invest and seek your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, several of you um, over the course of this week commented to me about how affected you were by one of the statistics I shared last Sunday. And the statistic was that if you have an income of $32,000 a year, you are on the top 1% of the world population, right? So to make $32,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of your fellow brothers and sisters around the world. And that is a staggering statistic, but let me share you just a few more. I'm going to have a couple of these on the screen. 80% of humanity lives on less than $10 a day. 80%. 80% lives on less than $10 a day. That's over 6 billion people. That's a lot of people, right? Almost half of the world, just about 50%, live on less than $2.50 a day. $2.50 a day. Some of you have been with me or with Marcus to Kenya or even other places, India, wherever, and you've seen uh, the global poor. And so it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget that we are astoundingly wealthy. If, if you live on less than $2.50 a day, just to put this into a little bit of perspective for you, if, if your income is $2.50 a day, which it is for 4 billion people, you make over the course of a year about what it costs for an iPhone. That's your annual income. Staggering, right? And yet for, for us in this room, for those in the developed West, um, in spite of our collective wealth, 65% of Americans regularly lose sleep over their money. We are, we are burdened with anxiety about our money. 30% of Americans, 30%, a third said they are, quote, constantly stressed out about money. In fact, there's, there's new data that was released at the end of last year from Northwestern Mutual, and it, it gave a statistic that found that money is the number one stressor for Americans, individuals or couples. Money is the number one stressor. In fact, it's more stressful for, for people than their personal relationships and their work combined. We're stressed. We're anxious about money. And of course, we get this, right? We, we think, yeah, of course we're stressed because, you know, if our, if our paychecks were just a little bit higher each month, we'd be all right. If our, if our emergency fund was just a little bit larger, if our retirement portfolio produced slightly better returns, I wouldn't have so much to worry about. And yet, of course, we would, right? This anxiety is not limited to those who are poor. This anxiety uh, affects those who are rich as well. Not just the global rich, but the rich in America, the one percenters here. This, this dissatisfaction and this anxiety is universal. And that's the point. 
There was an article in the New York Times uh, recently um, that was basically interviewing and exposing the deep, heartfelt anxiety among the rich. Because we think, you know, if, if we just had this, if we just had that, if we had that kind of financial security, we'd be okay. We'd be able to rest. But there was this expose, essentially, and the writer, uh, Carrie Hannon, she interviewed uh, several multimillionaires. She interviewed one multimillionaire who was a retired banker, and he said this. He says, I feel to some extent still that I just don't have enough money. Emotionally, I don't come from money. I got very lucky on Wall Street, and now since my retirement, I have been dealing with a myriad of psychological issues. I have more money than I ever thought I would have, but still, I worry. I don't think I have enough. You feel that ache? In that article, Hannah quoted from a book called Money Harmony, and, and there was a quote in that book that says, there is, this, there is this undercurrent, really for all people, for the rich and for the poor, there is an undercurrent that says money is equal to love. Money is equal to power. Money is equal to security, to control, to self-worth, to self-love. Money equals freedom for us. And that's why you hear the phrase, right? Financial what? Freedom. Money equals self-esteem. All of these loaded things we think that money supposedly can do, but it can't. This wasn't a Christian writer. This was just looking at, at, at the research done in assessing the anxiety that Americans have. And they say, guess what? That's not the answer. Whether you have a lot or whether you have a little, your barns will never be big enough. Whether you have $100 in your account or $100 million, your barn will never be big enough. Our barns will never give us the security we need. Our barns will never give us the self-worth or the freedom that we want, that we need. And Jesus knows that we're anxious about it. He knows we're anxious about it. And so what does he do? He, he redirects our attention he sort of takes our, our head from focusing on this way, and he just tilts it. He says, look at this instead. Get your eyes off your stuff. Get your eyes off your possessions. Get your eyes off your money. And instead, what does he say? Consider the birds. Think about the birds. Think about the flowers. He, you see what he does? He takes us to creation, right? He takes us to this beautiful thing that he made and that he provides for and that he has his hand on constantly. He says, look at the birds, look at the flowers. These birds don't even have barns. And yet God feeds them. These flowers don't even work. And yet God has clothed them in unmatched glory and beauty. And then what does he say? And you, you, church, you, you're more valuable than the birds. You're more valuable than the flowers. I am providing for you, he says. And then he, he, he makes his point, he drives his point home and really hits our hearts uh, with really a very practical question. He says, so which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to your life? It's just so utterly unproductive, right? Worry and anxiety about our stuff is just so 
unproductive. Now, I, I, I want to acknowledge here that each of us in this room, we, we all have a very complicated relationship with our money. In fact, it's very hard for us to sort of separate ourselves from our money and our stuff. We've become so accustomed to sort of identifying ourselves, sort of understanding who we are and our self-worth based on our external success. And so what we need is, um, we need a biblical theology of money. We need to better understand what the Bible has to say about our money because we're not sure how to think about it exactly. We carry shame if we don't have enough. We carry guilt if we have too much. We're not sure how we feel about it because it's such a complicated thing. But the Bible has a lot to say about it. Um, and before we get too far, it's, it's important to clarify that, that money itself is not evil. Money itself is not evil. Things themselves are not evil. Neither wealth, hear this church, neither wealth nor poverty are a sure sign of righteousness or wickedness. Do you hear that church? Your wealth is not a sign of your righteousness or, your, or, or not necessarily a sign of your wickedness or righteousness. And poverty is neither a sign of your righteousness nor wickedness. Because in the Bible, we see examples of all. We, we see people who are, who are rich because, because they are righteous. And we see people who are rich because they are wicked. And we see examples of those who are poor because they are righteous. And we see some who are poor because they are wicked and foolish. Job, just as one example in the Old Testament, Job was both, interestingly, Job was both noted as someone who was rich because of his righteousness, because he was a blameless man, because God showed favor on him, and through Satan's attacks was also poor because he was righteous. Several times in the book of Proverbs, we see examples of those who are, who are poor because they are wicked. For example, whoever oppresses will only come to poverty in Proverbs 22, 16. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Some who are wicked, though, because of their wickedness, become rich. It's hard to make sense of, right? Proverbs eleven sixteen. the violent men, they get riches. They oppress, they exploit, and they get the riches. It says, treasures gained by wickedness in the end do not profit. But we also see in the scriptures that, that some people are rich because, because they are righteous, because they've received God's favor. Whoever works his land, it says in Proverbs 28, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but whoever follows worthless pursuits We'll have plenty of poverty. In chapter 10, verse 22, it says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich. And he adds no sorrow to it. You see the difference? It's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. But when it's from God, he adds no sorrow to it. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant upon you that He swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Wise people, according to Scripture, wise people understand that money is a gift. 
It's a gift from God. It's a grace and mercy. It's something that must be received. It's not something that's, that's got because you're smart or because you're creative. It's something that you receive because of God's grace. It's passive, as it were. It's a tool to be used. Wise people can value money as a tool, but they do not love it. So we see in Scripture that money can, it can be a wonderful gift, but money will always be a terrible God. It is a terrible God to worship. It is a terrible thing to let your life orient itself around. So it's not money itself that's the problem, but our relationship with our money. It's our relationship with our stuff. Or, or more specifically, it's not our money that's the problem. It's our love of our money that's the problem. It's our excessive anxiety about our money that's the problem. Paul says in 1 Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's dangerous, isn't it, church? Money and things are dangerous. They're a dangerous distraction. They, they, they can create a dangerous delusion that we deserve it. That we don't need God. That we can bank on those things for our security. Money is dangerous. And money will always show us what we worship. Money exposes, right? Money exposes directly what each of us values. Scripture, in Scripture it says that, that greed and, and covetousness, it's, it's not only about the love of money, it's about this excessive anxiety about money. And Paul calls it idolatry. Paul says you, you, th you think more about money than you do about God. Your life is oriented around your stuff more than it's oriented around the reality of who God is and what he's given you. You're all messed up. You're, you're worshiping the creation. This is the essence of idolatry, right? You are worshiping the creation rather than the creator. You are valuing the creation more than you are valuing the creator. Idolatry is essentially looking um, for significance and security in something other than God. Or to put it another way, where you find your security, where you find your significance, that is your God. It shows you what you worship. The fool looks to his money. The fool looks to her possessions. That's what the fool does. But the wise look to God. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. whoever trusts in his riches will fall. But the righteous, the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Money can be a wonderful gift, but it's a terrible God. Money is a great tool, but it's a bad master, right? When money is your master, you cannot sleep at night worrying about your investments. When money is your master, the one who inherits wealth is ruined by it because he finds himself with no motivation to succeed. When money is your master, Scripture would say, Jesus is not because you can't serve both God and money, as he says in Luke 16. And we can never, ever appease the God of money. We can never satisfy that appetite. If that's who we are pursuing, if that's what we are trying to get our justification from, that God will never be satisfied. 
Solomon says in all his wisdom that whoever loves his money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. That paycheck's just never enough. That balance is just never enough. Money is a terrible God because among other reasons, among many other reasons, money is, is so unpredictable. And it's so untrustworthy. Some of us know this. Some of, it, as, of us have experienced that ourselves. We've, we've, we've lost the job. We've experienced a crash. We've, we've, we've experienced the illness that, that sucked so many of our finances away. And so Jesus in his grace and in his wisdom, he directs our attention away from our money and our stuff and toward God and towards his kingdom. What does he say? He says, don't seek what you're to eat and to drink. Don't be worried about those things. The nations of the world, they worry about those things. They seek after those things. But your father knows what you need. And he says, instead, seek his kingdom and the rest will be added to you. God's got you. God knows you. Everything you have, everything we have is a gift from our gracious Father, but it's not a God. Jesus redirects our attention. You see what he's doing? He's redirecting our attention from our stuff and our money, which are terribly unpredictable and untrustworthy. And he, he directs our attention to, to God, the only one who is ultimately trustworthy. The only one who is ultimately predictable. In fact, the only one who can handle the burden that love demands. The one who, unlike money, eases our anxiety instead of creates it. Billy Graham says, I think I might have this on the screen, anxiety is the natural result when our hopes are centered on anything short of God and his will for us. If you want to just fan the flame of your anxiety, that anxiety in your heart about your stuff. Focus all your energy on your stuff and forget about God and his grace and provision. That's a surefire way to live a terrifyingly anxious life. To be worried all the time because you are banking on something that cannot support that demand. It'll never bring you security. Not ultimately. Instead, he says, seek God's kingdom. Now that's easier said than done, right? It's easier said than done to seek his kingdom. So how do we do it? How do we, how do we relieve our anxiety about our money and our stuff? You know, there was this, uh, one friend of mine told me this story about a guy who, every time he got a new car, he would, um, he would, he would hit it like with a baseball bat in the door. So he would get a new car, and the first thing he would do when he got home is he would just ding the door with a baseball bat, right? And you're thinking, why, why would you do that? Because immediately when he did that, he, all the worry went away about when's the first time I'm going to get a ding in my new car, right? He took control of it. Yeah, I don't have to worry about that anymore. I'm not, I don't have to be anxious about it. It's going to happen. Something's going to happen. The least predictable thing I have is my car. I'll ding it up. How do, we get, how do we get lasting security and freedom? 
How, how do we, in the words of Jesus, this is beautiful language, how do we, in the words of Jesus, get money bags that don't grow old? How do we get a treasure that will not fail and cannot be stolen? Jesus is challenging us to invest our money and our stuff in the kingdom of God. Be, be intentional about maximizing your returns in the kingdom. Have you thought about it that way? Have you thought about how can I, how can I capture profits in the kingdom? How can I maximize my returns in the kingdom? You can invest your money in church planting. You can invest your money in training pastors in Kenya. You can invest in your, you could invest in your local church. You could spend your money on someone who's in desperate need. You could seek out ways to bless the poor. You could seek out ways to give to the kingdom. Because once you let go of it, once there's already a ding in the door, your worry goes down. Because it is a confession, an actual confession, that I'm not trusting in this anymore, I'm trusting in this. I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about my stuff in that same way. You, you're you're going to sleep better at night because this is what Jesus says. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, what does that mean? Part of what it means is that our, our hearts follow our treasure, right? That's what he's saying. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if our treasure is all invested in, all entangled in, everything that's unpredictable and untrustworthy, we will be anxious. And if we think about our stuff, and if we think about our money, and we say, how can I invest in something that is lasting, that is eternal, then our hearts, our, our emotions, our loves, our energies will follow that treasure and we'll be at ease. It's counterintuitive. I, I could say so much more about this whole idea. I had, there was a lot left on the cutting room floor for a sermon like this. Um, let, me, let me just end with a few, a few words here. There's one writer who commenting on this passage, Brian Chapel. He says, the, the reality for, for the rich or for the poor, the reality of money easily creates a heart-deep anxiety. And it just does. You don't even have to nod your head this morning. I know it does for you. It does for me. It does. Whether you have a lot of money or a little bit of money, the reality of it can easily create a heart-deep anxiety in us. But the gospel teaches us how to defeat that anxiety. The gospel teaches us how to defeat this destructive sin. Jesus says in verse 31, we must seek God's kingdom first. So that becomes our, our motivation. That becomes our vision. That becomes our destination and our goal. We seek his kingdom first. And that often means, the writer says, that often means letting go of your stuff and your money. Because you see such desperate need in the world. You, you, you're looking for ways to give. You're seeing people in need and it requires you to open your hands. The writer goes on to say, Jesus motivates us 
to this by a, a counterintuitive solution. If you want to have more security, let go of the stuff that's unpredictable. If you want to have more security, if you want to be more satisfied, let go. Because God our Father knows our needs and He promises to provide for our needs, He does so because He is a perfect Father. He cares for us deeply. He considers us ultimately valuable. And it is His good pleasure to give us what we need most. Access into this eternal kingdom. Only this vision of our Heavenly Father, combined with the promises of eternal riches, can ultimately motivate us at the heart level to live free from the love of money and find eternal joy in following Christ. There is a, there is a different kind. Scripture is calling us to a different kind of financial freedom. He knows that that's what we long for. He knows we long for freedom. He knows we long for self-worth. He knows we long for security. And so he says, stop looking at the wrong things. Because that plan is going to seem really good until you get punched in the face. Or until you lose your soul. Our money cannot be trusted. Our stuff only provides a false sense of temporary security. Don't, don't focus all your energy on building barns and forfeit your soul. Pursue kingdom returns. Reinvest kingdom profits. I'll, I'll end with this, Hebrews 13.5. Scripture says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Instead, be content. Be content with what you have because God has said, why? Why would we be content? Why would we not have the love of money? Why wouldn't we want that kind of freedom? Here it is. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed to you. I know you and I'm for you, God says. And every cent you have, every stick of furniture, every, every thread on your body is a mercy to you from God's generous hand. God says, don't you think I know you? I mean, just look around. Look what all God's made. But you, you, you're more valuable than all these other things.